Well, our text this morning is verse 17 through verse 32. So I'll go ahead and read that if you want to follow along with me. John eleven seventeen. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is God's word. So I chose, to, I chose to stop at verse 32 because we're coming up to some really, really familiar, really famous uh, parts of the text, like the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. But I chose to stop here because Mary says exactly the same thing to Jesus as Martha, the, the same words in the Greek. And I thought that was a, bookending this conversation that Martha has with Jesus. So I think we see Jesus and Martha, and then we have Jesus's famous um, I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, this, is, uh, this is the fifth of his seven I am statements. And we looked at uh, number, numbers uh, three and four a couple weeks ago where he said, I'm the door of the sheep and I'm the good shepherd. So this is number five, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then we finish up by seeing Jesus greet Mary. So there's a little bit of cultural context that I think will help us understand some of the things that are going on here. And first of all, we're told um, right, right in verse 17 that when Jesus arrived in Bethany, remember it was about 20 miles from where he had been at the Jordan River. Um, so it was quite a long walk and about 4,000 feet higher than the Jordan, which was below sea level at that point. Um, it says that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, if everyone was walking very quickly, it's possible that Lazarus was already dead when the messenger got to Jesus and told him, um, the sisters are sending for you. That's possible. It's more likely, um, though, that Jesus set out from the Jordan when he knew in his spirit that Lazarus had died. So it's more likely that he waited for two days um, because he was waiting for Lazarus to, to die. 
And then he set out and they took maybe three days to walk up to Bethany, something like that. It doesn't tell us exactly the timing of all that, but it's something like that. But in rabbinical tradition, here's the thing about four days. Four days is a really long time for somebody to be dead, especially in a society without, I mean, not to be crude, but in a society without refrigeration. So they buried people on the same day they died for a reason. Um, today we can keep, we can keep bodies for a while, but that was not the case then. Um, but there was also something about, there was a superstition in the air, a rabbinical tradition that, uh, it was not scriptural, but it is what it is. It was something, it was kind of folklore, something they thought maybe assumed, um, that the soul of a, of a deceased person lingers for three days. So that's interesting, right? That, that, the, that the soul of a person who has died actually stays near the body for about three days and then finally departs when the body starts to decompose. And that was, this was part of rabbinical tradition. So what that means is that if you were to read this with the eyes of a, of a Jewish person from the first century, what you would probably hear is, uh, it's too late. The fourth day means all hope is lost. There's no chance. There's nothing there to bring back. Does that mean, make sense? That's what four days means. And the other thing that you should know is that in every other case of resurrection recorded in the Bible, I'm not aware of anyone who's bought, brought back to life longer than maybe a few hours after they die. Right? So like when Paul, when, when Paul preaches so long that someone falls out the window and dies, how long was it until he brought that person back to life? was a young man, just a matter of minutes. He ran downstairs, came outside, and healed him on the spot. And same with, same with Elijah in the Old Testament, um, same with Jesus' other miracles of raising the dead. But four days is an extraordinarily long period of time. Now, you remember what Jesus said before this when he heard the news. Do you remember what he said? He said, this, uh, this illness does not lead to death. Right? It leads through, he meant it leads through death to something else. He says, um, he said in verse 4, chapter 11, he said, it's for the glory of God. So it doesn't lead to death, it leads to glory. Four days is long enough for them to see exactly what they need to see in this, um, in this miracle. There's also something about um, Jewish piety and cultural norms and mourning and grieving. Um, it was it was considered it was considered a central duty of Jewish piety uh, to visit and comfort those who had lost a loved one. This was extremely important, and this is why we see um, this is why we see that in verse nineteen, many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother because they were doing a religious duty and they took it seriously. And, the, and, and that means that the community is working. It's doing the thing that it's supposed to do. Um, so there was, there was a very distinct, and we have, um, every culture has its own rituals when, when somebody dies, its own death grieving process, right? It's one of, the, one of the very most, one of the very strongest characteristics of a culture is how they handle childbirth and marriage and death, those three things, right? So, and we have our own, and they had theirs as well. And so the part of the ritual of grief um, was that, as I mentioned, the body would be buried on the day of death, but the mourning went on for a period of time, usually a week, 
And so there would, uh, the, the house of the nearest relations to the person who had died would become a house of mourning. And there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. When all of these things were done in houses, because they didn't have mortuaries and they didn't have wedding venues, there would be a wedding at somebody's house, and that's a, wedding, that's a house of feasting. And when someone died, the, the house of the family would turn into a house of mourning. Do you understand? And so that, the, the home of Mary and Martha actually becomes a house of mourning. And that's important. That's important as we're about to see. But to set this scene, I want you to imagine what it would feel like for Jesus and his disciples to walk into this village at Bethany. As we said last week, it's just a little under two miles east of the city of Jerusalem. It's near the capital. It's kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. And they walk in to a community um, that's, just, that's just broken over the loss of this man. He seems to have been a fairly important person. He seems to have been young. He may have been, um, he may have been, he probably was younger than me. Um, and, and so this man is ill and he dies in the prime of life. And so this, this is a town that's just cheerless and dark and heavy with reminders of death. People are weeping, maybe wailing. It's definitely bitter and the atmosphere is just sort of that of a funeral. And it's a, it's a small enough village as most towns were in the time that, that you would probably be aware of this from anywhere in the community. It's not like, it's not like city, big cities today where someone's having a wedding on that side of town and someone else having a funeral on that side of town. They just, this is a town that's heavy with death on this day. And this is where Jesus shows up. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So Jesus, I, one thing I don't want us to miss here is that Jesus is doing, he's doing his duty. He's visiting. He's there to comfort and to console these people that he loves. He's, he's delayed for two days, but he has now come to console his friends, which, which means that he's a good, pious Jewish man. He's doing his duty, his cultural duty here. But, but he doesn't go all the way in, does he? There's a house that he knows, he's been there. There's a house where people would customarily make an appearance in this situation, but he's not there. He's holding himself outside of the grieving process so that Martha has to come to him, which is a break with etiquette. You would go to the grieving person you wouldn't make them come to see you. And so commentators usually make of this that there were enemies of Jesus who had come from Jerusalem to see Mary and Martha. And that may have been true, but I don't think that's why he's staying away from this house. I think maybe it's because Jesus is the only one who can still do something here. Right? Jesus is about to go straight for the heart of the situation like he always does. But on his way, and we'll get to that next week, on his way there, he's going to have this brief conversation that's just seared into our, into our, our impression of Jesus for all time because of the words that he says here in verses 
um, in verse 25. And it teaches us so much about his work on that day. And it's in response to something that Martha says to him. You look at, um, at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. Some of you weren't here last week. It was a, the whole message was about unanswered prayer. Um, and, and I asked this question because this is the question when it comes to unanswered prayer or what's, what feels to us like unanswered prayer. Is it better for God to protect us from suffering or to show us his glory by turning our suffering inside out into something beautiful? Remember that question? Um, and, and also I quoted Elizabeth Elliot who said that we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is different. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. That's the love of God. And I remind you of that because this is what Mary's, or what Martha is saying here, and later Mary as well. That's exactly what she's saying. She's saying to Jesus, you could have prevented this. You could have saved him. And she's not doing it in a way that is, um, I don't think she's complaining. I think it's an expression of faith because she goes on to say in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She really does believe that Jesus could have done a miracle, right? She says that, you could have prevented this, but she's facing the past. She's not thinking about what he'll do now. She thinks he's just there to mourn with them. She's only thinking about what he might have done if he had come sooner. So there's two sides, pretty clearly there's two sides in tension here within Martha. We don't get any words out of Mary, by the way, except for saying the same thing that Martha said, but there's more here between Jesus and Martha. And we see two sides in tension, and we have the grieving disciple, or I mean the grieving sister and the disciple of Jesus, the one who believes and the one who's grieving, the one who's bereaved on the one hand, of her brother and in pain, and the one who is actually glad to see Jesus wishes he had come sooner. Does that seem like what she's experiencing right now? So this is, this is the setting of the conversation. And when Jesus speaks, notice that he does not address her grief. Not really, or not directly at least. He addresses Martha as his disciple, right? He says, your brother will rise again. I mean, what hopeful words. What a thing for him to say. I mean, if he's, if he's God in the flesh and she knows that, which she does, then he's giving her the highest form of comfort that he possibly could, right? He is. That's what he's doing. He's comforting her in a way that no one else is capable of because he's God saying, your brother will rise again. And look at what she says. Martha said to him, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha misunderstands what he's saying, doesn't she? She gives him a good theological answer. That's what this is. It starts with the words, I know. It's something, that, it's something that's up here. I know, I know about the resurrection. Jesus says, your brother will 
Your brother will rise again. She says, I, I know that in the distant future. I get it. And this is really a fantastic picture of when our theology can get in the way. Even good theology. She's right. He will rise on the last day. But there are times when our good, sound, theological knowledge meets the power of Jesus and actually obscures it. And that's what's happening here. Martha is not wrong. She's just not immediate enough about Jesus. She knows the right answer, but her right answer gets in the way of the comfort that Jesus has to give her. Do you see it? It's a very interesting thing to say. And to put this in perspective, I think this will help. I want you to think about how a child would have heard this. How a child would have responded if Jesus said to, if Jesus said to a little girl, your brother will rise again. Was it, is a child likely to say, oh yeah, I know that. I know there's resurrection of the just and the unjust on the last day and this and that and the other thing. Or would a child get up and run to the tomb to see what he would do? Right? When Jesus says you have to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven, this is the kind of thing he's talking about. And I actually think this, this made me realize, I mean, she's hearing him through her theological filter here. But Jesus, this is kind of, this is just, this one's for free. It doesn't have much to do with the, with the text per se, but Jesus is easier to understand. He's easier to understand if you take the most childish interpretation of his words. I am not, by childish, I don't mean ignorant or simple, because children aren't ignorant or simple. I mean enchanted. Children are prepared to take Jesus at face value in a way that our hearts are sometimes aren't capable of as adults. He says things like, your brother will rise again, and we go like, yeah, I know about the resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going I'm to bring him out of the tomb today. It's happening in a few minutes. And she doesn't get it. It's okay for her not to get it. But I want you to see what's happening here because I think that, I think that we do the same thing. Martha and the rest of we adults, we're not so easily caught up in the power and the wonder of Jesus, are we? And maybe that's because we think we know everything. Just throw that out. We can see all the angles There's a little bit of that happening here. The sisters know Jesus well. They've seen him, seen him heal, seen him teach. They know him. And maybe, maybe they know him a little too well in a sense, right? There's a 17th century theologian named Stephen Charnock, and he said this, which I think is really good. Um, he, He said that whenever we think about God, This quote is in your sermon notes too. Whenever we think about God, we need to tell ourselves, this is not God. God is more than this. If I could fully understand him, he would not be God. For God is incomprehensibly above whatsoever I can say, whatsoever I can think and conceive of him. Does that make sense? 
Theologians call this the incomprehensibility of God. Great big word. It's my one big word for today. Incomprehensibility of God. And it's the mistake that I think Mary and Martha are making here. And we do too. We grow too familiar with God. We allow our ideas about God to become a thin substitute for God himself. But on the other hand, when we're fresh towards God, we know anything could happen next because he's sovereign. He created the universe. He does what he wants. Anything could happen. And we will avoid making assumptions about God and what he's doing. And assumptions come very easily when God seems not to be answering our, par- our prayers to go back to last week. And that's what the sisters are doing here too. They feel like it's over. We'll never see Lazarus again in this life. Jesus could have prevented it, but there's nothing anybody can do now. It's been four days. So that all of that is leading up to what Jesus said next. And his answer, I think, is designed to puncture Martha's familiarity and make her see him again. And so he says something that's, when we're honest, not quite that easy to wrap our heads around. But on another level, if we hear him like children, it makes perfect sense. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life, first of all, means that Jesus makes tragedies come untrue. And he makes dying things go on living. So resurrection is not an effort that Jesus makes. He can't raise people from the dead because he knows the trick. There's no technique. It's because of who he is that he can do this. And one of the things that's kind of hard to wrap our heads around about this statement is just the two things that he says he is, resurrection and life. They, go, they have a particular relationship, and I want to try to illustrate that right now. It's like saying, saying I'm the resurrection and the life is like saying I am the dance and the music. I am the color blue and the light. I am the Passover and the promised land. I am the wedding vow and the marriage. You see, the resurrection is an event, it's, it's a distinct thing, but life is a category. And resurrection is not only possible, it's inevitable because of who Jesus is. So I think a good way of understanding what he's saying here in this context is I am not only capable of bringing Lazarus back from the dead, but I cannot fail to give eternal life to everyone who believes in me because life is what I am. Jesus doesn't have to exert any effort to raise a man from the dead. He only has to stop restraining his power for a split second and enough life 
comes out of him to make a corpse stand up and breathe. That's what he's saying. And this is something for us to believe as well, something really important for us to believe about Jesus. So I want you to turn to Psalm 30 with me. And let's see if we can flesh this statement out just a little bit more. Psalm Psalm 30. says that this is a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restore me to life from among those who go down to the pit. I want you to imagine Lazarus reading this psalm any time after he had been raised from the dead. What would that be like? You restored my soul from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And the reason that I read you that psalm is this, and it's right here in this story, that Jesus didn't, Jesus did not just come to make some things a little better for us. To make life a little bit easier. To solve some of our problems. That's the way some people treat Jesus. But that's not what he's about. He came to make everything brand new. He came to a world full of death that humanity made by our sin. And he came to spin it backwards until all of the bad things come untrue. But in order for us to see this particular glory of Jesus, things have to die first. And then we can see them come untrue. The bottom line is that Jesus doesn't participate in the mourning of the community here because it's not true. It's about to be untrue. Jesus turns mourning into dancing. That's what that psalm is about. He turns death into life. He turns pain into glory. The village of Bethany, it's really a microcosm of the whole world, isn't it? 
And Jesus comes when it seems too late, when all hope is lost, when it's been four days. And that's when he turns mourning into dancing. And that's what it means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now imagine, I'm, I'm moving ahead here, I'm getting ahead of myself, but imagine, imagine the kind of weeping and sadness and just the grief in the house of Mary and Martha that morning. And then by the time the sun goes down, they're dancing, they're singing. They're in disbelief at how powerful Jesus really is, this man who they knew and they thought they knew, but they didn't know everything about him. So going into the last section here, and Mary, Mary comes out to Jesus now. So Martha, well, just to wrap that up, when he says, do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Martha has come to, come to him with her grief, but he has, he has spoken to her as his disciple and look at the kind of response that he elicits from her heart. She really does believe in him. She really does. And he sets her grief a little to the side and gives her a clear view of himself. She says, yeah, I know. I know that you're the Messiah. I know that. So she goes back to the house. We can imagine what's going on in her heart at this point. She's probably feeling even more conflicted. There's, isn't there a thing about grief too where you don't, you don't actually, when you get bad news, you don't actually want to let yourself start hoping because what if the hope gets crushed and then you're even sadder than you were before? Can anyone relate to that? I kind of wonder if that's happening in her heart here because she knows Jesus is here and she suspects he just said something that made it sound like maybe he's going to do something. So she goes back to the house and she tells Mary privately that the teacher's here and calling for you. So he's called the second sister out to him. She rises quickly and goes out and it says in verse 30 that Jesus still had not come into the village. He was in the place where Martha had met him. He was waiting outside And so Mary gets up and the people see her get up and go out quickly and they follow her. Now there's a crowd. And it says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So it's worth noting that Martha has has a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, whereas Mary, she's inconsolable. Really, she collapses at his feet. She's beside herself. And Jesus doesn't answer her. And I think that's because Martha, we see the, the, the tenderness of Jesus here because Martha was prepared to engage Jesus in a dialogue, distraught as she was. She was ready to talk to Jesus. But Mary, there's nothing you can say that's comforting to someone who's feeling this. There's nothing to be said. So Jesus is being perfectly caring and sensitive towards her in, in, this, in this moment. He's not, he's not ignoring her pain, right? He's, he's just being with her. And if you've been through a really hard time, you know how comforting that can be. 
And so this leaves us on the cusp of Jesus's greatest miracle, which we'll look at next week on Easter Sunday. Um, But there's a couple of things. I think there's a couple of other things to note here before we wrap up. One is that Jesus has now, he's done his duty. He's visited the family like you're supposed to do. And he's tried to comfort them. And I think that his words seem to have made an impact on Martha. Uh, But Jesus still doesn't go to the house of mourning. And that's because his business isn't in the house. It's with the lifeless body that's inside the tomb. He's going to plant his feet in front of death and take back the one he loves. I think um, there's a verse in Romans that talks about our experience of death. It's Romans 5.12, where Paul writes that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Is that familiar, that verse? We should all know that one. But I want, you, I want to ask you this. How, in what way or in what sense can we say that death spread to all men? Does it mean just that everyone dies eventually? It does mean that, but does it mean anything more than that? I think it does. I think it means that life in this world is full of the shadows of death little touches of death. Every loss is a kind of death. Sickness is a kind of death. Separation is a kind of death. Hatred and conflict and loneliness, they're all kinds of death, right? That's what they feel like because they're little expressions of death. This is what came into our world because of sin. What this means is that every time Jesus healed somebody, he was practicing resurrection. He was reversing the effects of death. Resurrection isn't just about an event. Resurrection is a person. And what people got from Jesus in, when he was walking the earth wasn't just a healthier body. They got a little jolt of life. You could say that when Jesus healed somebody, death became less real in them. By the way, death won't always be real. You know that, right? It's defeated now, but there will come a time when we'll have to try hard to remember what death was and what it felt like. So resurrection is not anything other than just a a restoration to what God considers to be normal. Death is abnormal. Death was not part of his plan. And the key here, I think, for us, the takeaway, is, is really to challenge our own ways of saying, yeah, Jesus, I know that someday, I know, I realize that someday it's going to be okay. And to confront our dullness to the immediate power of Jesus to roll back death in our lives right now 
So in what way, I mean, we all say that we believe in the power of Jesus, but in what way do you believe in that power? Let me put it this way. In what tense do you believe in the power of Jesus? When he comes to you in the midst of suffering, do you look backwards and say, you could have prevented this? If only you had been here, you could have stopped this from happening. Or do you, with Martha, do you stand and look far into the future and say, yeah, I know someday things will be all right. So when Jesus comes to us, we, we tend to do one, of, one or both of these things, just like Martha here. Yeah, you could have stopped this. Jesus says, your brother will rise. And she says, yeah, I know someday it'll be okay. Implying that today is not the day that it will be okay. But Jesus meets us in the present tense, doesn't he? He says, here, now, look at me. I'm with you. I am everything you need. I am, in fact, everything that you want. And I'm right here. So learning to be with Jesus in the present moment is what it means to walk by faith. When we are hurting, Jesus' answer is to fix our eyes on him. Anytime we are suffering in some way, our hearts are typically fixed on death, death in one of its many forms. But the answer is to fix our hearts on life, the one who is life. The answer to our suffering is standing right in front of us. It's not some ideal arrangement of our material conditions. It's actually a person, and he's right here. Let's pray.